Welcome to How We Got Here, UVM Stories, the podcast where we interview alumni from the University of Vermont and share their career stories. Our goal is to unpack how they got from point A to point B in a way that is tangible and practical for our listeners. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show where I chat with Serene Michelle Dillman, a documentary filmmaker who's directed films like Getting to the Nutcracker and The Fifth Dementia. We talk about Serene's career journey from being on the path to becoming a lawyer to breaking into commercial film. Serene's journey is a very interesting one. She brings with her a lot of confidence. She's a go-getter. And there's a lot of detail in this story about how she continued to rise to the ranks, ultimately becoming a director. I think you're going to get a lot of value out of this one, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's dive in. Hey, Serene. Welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have you. Thank you. Hi, Jonathan. Happy to be here. Yeah. And so what I wanted to start off with for our listeners is just to have you introduce yourself Talk about where you're from, what year you graduated UVM, what your major was, and then just talk a little bit about what you're working on today. Okay. Well, I'm originally uh, from the New York City area. I graduated UVM in 1985. (laughs) I think I'm a lot older than most of the people you've talked to. My uh, major was political science with a minor in English for a while, a minor in sociology for a while, a minor in psychology for a while. Mm-hmm. I pretty much didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. Why don't you talk about what you're working on today? Well, there's um, a few projects I'm working on, and that's kind of what I do. I throw a bunch of balls in the air and see which one lands. One of them is going to go when the stars align. So on my last film, I guess it was towards the end, I was in Europe with my family and we got a call from my parents that my mother had been diagnosed with um, stage four spindle cell sarcoma. It was a lung, 0.03% of lung disease, but it's a, a lung cancer that was irreversible. So she decided with the California right to die law now to take her own life. And so she was calling to find out when we'd be home. And so we got back home on a, on like August 7th or something. And then she said, okay, I'm doing it on the 9th. So we drove up to San Francisco. We live in LA and she took her own life with all of us around her. And I filmed the whole thing. And I thought that the concept that now I think something like 15 states, states have adopted of the right to die uh, was so fascinating and it was so humane and so brave and so courageous and really, um, would be a wonderful way for me to choose to die should I have that opportunity instead of, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, or Parkinson's, or any of the other ones that sort of deteriorate over many years. Um, so I just thought that would be a, a really good topic for my next film and or documentary. The problem with that is our, I need cases. So I don't normally like to talk about the projects I'm working on. I feel like that's right. a little superstitious, but this one I am just because... If anyone hears this and knows someone that's decided within the next six months to take their own life in a state that allows that, I'd like to follow it. I need like two or three cases. I have two already that have already happened. So that's one project. And then another one I'm working on with my husband, who is a cyclist. And it's about um, a group of black cyclists here in Los Angeles that are killing it on the competitive circuit around the world out of Compton. It's a pretty cool story. Yeah, And then I have another one that I'm working on with a woman who was a mom of one of the male dancers in my first documentary, which was Getting to the Nutcracker, 
who's written a book. And so I'm talking to her about doing a film on her book. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. I, I think, you know, that's that's a very noble project of you to raise some awareness uh, around that, because I know that's a hotly debated topic and and just shedding some light on the human side. And so for students, like just taking a step back, I mean, you're you're a filmmaker, right? You're a director, producer. Could you talk just a little bit at a high level of your experience over the years, what you know those titles are and just some of the projects that you've worked on in the past? Okay. I think it probably started at UVM. I took a photography course and I have always had a camera. I did, I've done stills forever, for 40 years. When I started as a PA, which is a production assistant, doing television commercials when I first came out to California, I was doing stills for all the shoots that I was on. So a lot of behind the scenes kind of things. And I have always liked it. I mean, I'm, I'm a still shoot all the time. And that kind of lent itself, I guess, to wanting to be behind the camera as a storyteller. And it was sort of a series of coincidences that ended me up in film because I, I did work in commercial film production for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had written, well, let me back up a little bit. So when I grew up in New York City, I used to be a ballet dancer at School of American Ballet, which is the student school that feeds into New York City Ballet. Okay. And so we did Nutcracker every year. And there was a book done when I was at the school called A Very Young Dancer by Jill Kremitz, who was Kurt Vonnegut's, is, well, he's dead, but she's still alive. And um, she was his Kurt Vonnegut's wife. So her book put this girl, Stephanie, on the cover, which Stephanie was Clara in the Nutcracker that year, which is the lead. And it followed her from auditions to her performance in City Ballet's Nutcracker. And then I was reading the New York Times, probably close to 10 years ago now. And there was an article on Stephanie, that girl, and what had happened since she was on the cover of that book, because the book sold millions of copies and she became very famous. Anyone who was in the dance community for ballet knows this book. And what had happened in, in the article was that she you know, had dropped out of school, dropped out of ballet, got into drugs. She's okay now. Apparently she lives on a horse farm in Montana somewhere. But um, I just thought it was really interesting that people still cared about what someone who was a character in a ballet 30 years ago was doing now. It just seems absurd, but right. kind of interesting. People yeah. like to know what's happening behind the scenes. So I wrote a treatment for a reality TV show which follows a ballet company from auditions to final performance. And I started shopping that around and NBC liked it and signed me to a six month contract, which was enough time to try and get the idea sold. Cause once they have the idea, they, they go to some huge convention in New York city and they, they put all their ideas out there and hope that someone buys it. Yeah. So NBC came back to me after that in um, time in New York and said, sorry, nobody's interested. We're done. Goodbye. And so that was that. But in the meantime, I had been looking for a ballet company to do this with, because when you do a reality TV show, everybody kind of thinks you're going to exploit the kids or you're going to do something nefarious. And right. Um, Cause they don't know me from Adam. So they don't, they don't know what I'm going to do. And that's kind of what reality TV is. So 
I ended up finding this one company in Los Angeles, coincidentally, who knew me because I, my daughter was at school with two of their kids. And so we'd known each other for years. So they um, brought me into this ballet company and that ballet company, after I told them the idea wasn't happening, called me like a month later and said, you know, we really liked you. We liked the idea. Would you just do it with us as a documentary? Right. So that was like, all right, sure. You know, and, and having done commercials for so long, I kind of knew what I needed to do. Okay. So I got a DP and I put a crew together and I had the company starting right away in their auditions for their upcoming Nutcracker. And we just, we just did it. I mean, it was like, I wanted to call my production company, CD of Pants Productions, because that's what it felt like. It was just like run and gun. Right. Um, you know, I, I would not know what I was going to shoot that day until I got there. And right. it ended up being something like 33,000 hours of film over six wow. months. And, you know, it was a long editorial, but yeah, that's how the whole thing started. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, that that's really <laughs> impressive. And right off the bat, I mean, 10 minutes into this interview, we're already hearing about how you put yourself in an uncomfortable position. So this was the first time you directing a documentary, right? Yes. Well, I wasn't going to say no. You right. Know, because exactly. it, was a, it was a subject I knew about both sides. I knew about production and I knew about right. ballet. So yeah. it, it was kind of a no-brainer. And right. it, it ended up, the film did really well in festivals. I think we won like seven awards throughout the year. Yeah, it did really well. And it was so much fun. And I... I really enjoyed the whole process. And so then I decided that I'd look for another project and then something right. came my way. And yeah. So the thing about documentary filmmaking though, is that you have to really feel impassioned about the subject. It has to right. touch you in some way. Otherwise it doesn't come out well. Well, it's, it's interesting because two worlds collided film production and ballet in such a way it manifests this opportunity for you and you, you, you know, you just took the reins and you, and you did it. So that's really fascinating. And I, I want to dive more into that. I want to dive more into the, the television production that you've done, but why don't we step back and why don't we talk? I like to call this the origin story. How did you originally end up at the university of Vermont? You're from New York city. What, what is that story? So my parents, both my mother and my father went to university of Vermont I think they they graduated in 1960. They graduated. My dad graduated from law school in 64. And then my uncle went there and as well as to the UVM medical school. And then my cousins went there and it was like a family school. And it was my, yeah. it was my backup because it wasn't my first choice. Having grown up in a city, I thought once I went up to visit that I was just going to go in the opposite direction. I mean, I was Right. I remember muttering to myself in the car, like, look at all these cows. <laughs> How could there be this much grass and this many right. cows? And, and when I got to Vermont for my visit, I ended up staying up all night with friends that I had known from high school. And I went to see Santana. It was like my, one of my first concerts and I had just the best time. And yeah. the guy that, the guy that I um, knew from high school was in Delta Psi fraternity at the time. And, you know, we hung out with all those guys. And I just came home and I said, I'm going to Vermont because I had the best Yeah. <laughs> Where was that? Where was that concert? At Vermont. It was, it was at UVM. I don't remember one of wherever they had it. I don't know. Yeah. I saw a lot of concerts in Vermont. I remember seeing English Beat, Grateful Dead. 
Um, yeah. Warren Zevon, who I still love. Oh Grace my Jones. You know, all, all the, yeah. Wow. And so I think you mentioned your major was political science coming into school. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about, I mean, what were you thinking at the time when you entered school, picking a major? Did you have any vision of becoming this director and, and film? No, you know, no, it didn't even yeah. cross my mind. My father was an attorney in New York and he kind of put me on the path of pre-law, I guess. I mean, I, I, I took the LSATs. Oh, I applied to law school yeah. after Vermont right. and I got in. And was ready to go to law school. And then my dad <clears throat> set me up with a, um, an interview with a, a company in New York. Well, it's huge. It's like Skadden Arps. It's like a factory mm-hmm. law firm there. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And I met this woman and she, we had lunch and she just said to me, you know, I was third in my class. I am making this much money. I think at the time it was like 30 or 40,000 a year. And she's like, and I'm working 80 hours a week. And she just kind of essentially talked me out of law school. And so I went home that week and I, and I told my parents I was, was not going to continue and go to law school. And I feel like that was such a good decision because I ended up kind of just trying to figure out what made me happy. You know, right. you follow, you, when you don't know what you're going to do, you follow along with what you know. I thought, okay, I know law. I'll, I'll just go that route. And you can always have a law degree, but it just would have, I think I would have been miserable. Right. And how did that pa- conversation go with your parents? Well, they were fine. Saved them some money. Yeah, that's good. And I, I asked that because I know there's students and even alumni out there who probably do worry about what their parents think and go into fields because of that. So you're a great example. So you have lunch with a woman. She kind of talks you out of this. You recognize it. Now, how, how do you go in that moment? You're thinking, OK, I'm not going to pursue this. What do you start to do to figure out what it is that you're interested in? Well, I ended up just getting sort of the first job that was handed to me. My very good friend at the time was working in an advertising agency. And there was an opening as an assistant to one of the creative directors. And I just went in. It was an entry-level position. And I got it. And I ended up working there for a year or so. And I really liked the advertising business, but I felt... That side of it was really boring, but I loved the whole idea of production because when we did production on whatever we were working on, it was much more exciting. Right. Um, And so then I I guess, oh, I I had a boyfriend at the time who was at architecture school out in LA and I went to visit him and ended up staying. And then because his next door neighbor was a PA, I mean, this is like, you know, crazy but it, it was he, the next door neighbor was a PA and I was st- staying there with my boyfriend and there was an earthquake and in the middle of the night the entire apartment building funneled out at like three in the morning wow. we we're all standing there talking and I met all my all the neighbors and this one guy was like yeah I'm working I gotta get up at work tomorrow I'm not gonna have any sleep and I said where are you working and he said I'm a PA on this commercial and they need all these people and they can't find anyone and I said I'll go Wow. <laughs> at three what in the serendipity at three in the, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I went with him to work the next morning and from there, that was it. I was a PA for like a year or two in LA. And then I hooked up with this one director who had an office in LA and New York. His name is Bob Giraldi. He's a very yep. famous commercial film director. Yep. And um, Bob and I hit it off and, and he quickly put me up to coordinator and then producer. And I produced for Bob for about 15 years. 
uh, on both coasts, which was great. And that was that. So that, when, when you say that's, that's an earthquake, I mean, so, okay. So you're, you visit, <laughs> you're visiting a boyfriend in LA. Were, did you have that old job with, with the advertising company while you were visiting? Uh, no, actually I, I, I left out one small thing. The friend that had gotten me, who had told me about the position in the ad agency hat <laughs> was from North Manier, North Carolina. And her brother had several clothing factories in Haiti. And so, and he was a um, small plane pilot. So we went with him to Haiti <laughs> one, yeah. one weekend. I mean, the story gets a little very convoluted, but we went with him and we saw an opportunity to bring back some baskets from Haiti to sell in stores. So we, we did that. We, we right. quit our jobs and we fought, we formed a company called Emporia Inc. And we started importing baskets from Haiti. And we did that for about a year and we sold to Bloomingdale's and Macy's and Lord and Taylor. Wow. But it was not very lucrative because quality control in Haiti is very difficult and you can't keep right. going back and forth. And it's, right. it's kind of a dangerous political climate at the time. Um, and her brother didn't want to keep flying us back and forth. And I mean, he would pick us up and there he'd have a gun in his ankle, a gun in his truck, a gun in his house. Yeah, right. Right. It was very dangerous. And so decided to, she was going to, my boyfriend in LA wanted me to come out. So she didn't want me to leave New York, but I said, I'm leaving and you can right. do New York and I'll do LA. So I brought all these baskets out to LA and put them in storage. <laughs> yeah. And then I just got, you know, ended up in the production. And so I kind of, she took over the baskets for a little bit after I stopped. And then I think she stopped too. So it was just kind of an inter interim job. Yeah. Baskets. Very, very little entrepreneurial spirit there. <laughs> and okay. So you, so you get out to LA three in the morning, you're, you're talking to this person. He's a production assistant. Do you remember that first day going with him and what that was like? No, I, I remember the company. I just don't remember. Okay. I think I was driving a truck actually and picking up camera equipment, okay. having never driven okay. a truck before. Yep. I was very humbled. You know, I was so thankful yeah. to be getting the work and said, I'll do whatever you want. And they're like, can you drive a truck? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. You say you can do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh my God. Fascinating. And we'll, we'll unlock, I mean, a, a lesson there. Again, for students and alumni, it's like you, you know, there, there's people whose problems you can help solve. And if you're humble enough to be that person that is going in a truck and you've never driven a truck and you're going and you're, you're picking up camera equipment, but your willingness to do that led to some much bigger opportunities. And so you have this 20 year career producing. I mean, tell me what is, what is that like? Like, what does a producer do? What were some of the things that you were working on and doing in that time? Um, you're basically just organizing the whole shoot. So you start with calling all the crew and putting everybody on hold. And if somebody's not available, finding someone else to fill that position. And then once you crew up, you get all the equipment that the crew people say they need for whatever the boards are for the job. Boards are what you're going to be shooting. Right. Um, you organize the casting with a casting company, and then you set up all those dates and send all the scripts director usually does a set of boards so the actors can see what they need to do. And then you cast and then you get permitting for whatever locations you're shooting. You have to go location scouting. Once you look at pictures, you send a location scout out and you get picture, preliminary pictures. And then you would narrow it down to three or four places and <clears throat> go scout. And then 
um, it all sort of comes together. You just organize it all, you know, the drivers, the equipment, the crew, the locations, the permits, police, the, right. um, the weather, you know, you have to get weather days and travel. Some, a lot of times it's traveling to other countries or states and hotels and planes. And yeah, so it's, okay. it's just basically coordinating everything and you're the, where the buck stops. So if something's too expensive, if, if, if the lighting director would like to have, you know, $2 million worth of lights, you have to say, mm, can't have that, you know, pick something right. else. Right. Um, so, you know, you have to make sure you stay in the budget. And at the time, you know, if you are a producer that can stay in under budget or on budget, you get extra money for that. And, you know, it's, I don't know that that's still the case, but right, uh, right. at the time it was. And also Bob was the kind of director that liked to teach. So anytime he had an editorial session or a music session or a voiceover session, he'd bring me along and, and I would just watch and learn. And he right. was, was really good about that. And that's one of the things that instilled so much loyalty in his crew was that he taught and brought people up through the ranks. Right. So nobody wanted to leave him. And so it was always the same people and we were all good friends. And I'm sure that's kind of what it's like on a, on a long film shoot too. It's just really easy to work with people like that. That's incredible. So I, in a way, I mean, he was a mentor to you because he's teaching and he's showing. And I think that's wonderful, especially when you have a leader who takes that time, it, it really, I think does pay dividends. And so you go hey, from he still, he still teaches, I think, in New York City at the university. Still oh, really? Teaches. Okay. Yeah, he, he he's always done it. He's he's a really talented. You know, he's he was. I mean, if you just look up his name, you can see. But he did all the Michael Jackson videos. He did a lot right. of the Miller beer campaigns and um, a lot of the memorable commercials in his time. Right. That's wonderful. And I think for you too, people like the advice that we give, especially to students. And I mean, alumni, your manager matters a lot when taking a job. In this case for you, it's a director, but that person probably mattered a lot for your career development and where you went. And so, I mean, how did you go from you're you're picking up cameras in a truck and as much as you can remember, how did you end up being a producer? Was it networking? Was it just keep working up the ladder? Keep Yeah, that was it. It was just, you know, you develop relationships with people and part of part of being with the same I think I probably worked for three or four production companies over and over and over and then right. pretty much narrowed it down to just one as because he worked nonstop. And so once you do that, you know, they I wouldn't have been happy being a PA for twenty years, you know. So he knew in right. order to keep me that I had to move up. And so then I coordinated for about four or five years and then he knew that I wouldn't stay with him if I didn't get put up again. So he wanted to keep me. And so he made me a producer and, right. you know, it, it, it served both of us. Right. Did you communicate that to him or is that something he innately knew? Okay. She's been with me for two years. It's time or, I, or she's going to go somewhere it's else. It's just how it's how television commercial production works. It's yep. just, a, yep. everybody knows it. it's not something that he or I knew. It's just, that's the way it is. Right. And if somebody doesn't put you up, then you go out on your own and do it. Right. 
Interesting. And so, you know, again, I, I love to keep calling back for students and alumni to really just point these things out because I do encourage people to really communicate what they want and communicate. I want to move to this and this. So I, I don't think it ever hurts, but context matters. And it's very interesting in this scenario when you develop a skill set, if it's very marketable and something that you can go to other places, then, you know, there's always that opportunity before you to do that. But luckily in this case, you had someone who's kind of been moving you up. And so before we get to I kind also, of more, I also, oh, ahead, oh, sorry to interrupt you, but one of the okay. other things I remember that he liked so much was that I was shooting stills behind the scenes for no, with, with nobody telling me I just did it on my own. And then I would print all of the really good shots and give them to him at the end of each shoot. And he loved that. And that was just kind of something I did on my own because I loved it, but also he loved it. And so part of, part of, you know, our relationship was that, that, I I mean, I remember giving him photo albums, like I would put together a photo album for each shoot and then give it to him and he would keep them in his office and people would look at him. That's so cool. Yeah. Really interesting. And you just did that. Like that was just something you did on your own. There's so much opportunity for that. And I, I think those who really set themselves apart, do that. And in this case, it wasn't necessarily even work related. It was more the sentimental building the bonds, building the relationships. So you can think about that too, whether you're working at a company or you're out on your own, I mean, building that culture and and doing things. So that's really interesting because that probably got his attention in that. Like you, you're talking about building relationships and just to tie it back quick, cause you, you mentioned you took a photography class at UVM. I'm just curious what drew you to that? Was that something you just, you saw it and said, oh my gosh, I have to do this. Did someone tell you about that class? Do you, do you remember like what that kind of looked like? I remember I always was interested in film and TV and I took communications with a professor named Tuna there. I don't remember his actual name. His nickname <laughs> was Tuna. He's a big fat That's guy. Great. There wasn't a huge amount of production kind of courses to take there, but photography, I'd always had a camera in my hand, always from right. very little girl. So that was just the, probably the one course that was available. So I took Right. Great. And so, okay. A lot of serendipitous moments, a lot of, you know, you're moved to LA, you get this PA job, you move through the ranks during that 20 year period. What was your favorite project that you worked on? The commercials? Probably there was this one campaign that we did for, I think it was Miller beer actually, where they had all of these, famous athletes in one place. I mean, from baseball, football, luge, like there was the Jamaican bobsled team. There was um, the cyclists. There were, um, I mean, there must've been like 50 different, very famous athletes. And I knew none of them. So I kind of just was buddies with everyone. And didn't treat them probably like they were used to be treated. So I ended up having a really fun time because yeah. I just would hang out with all these people. And, and even after we were done shooting, we would go out and hang out. And it was, I just remember just being like with people that I would never, ever spend any time with. So it was, it was kind of strange. I mean, run DMC was part of that for some reason. I'm not even sure why, but cause they're not right. athletes, but it was a little surreal. And I remember Paul Newman was there and I think they, it was a, it was a mixture of just famous people for all these different commercials for Miller. And I, right. and I can't remember what it was, but that they had to do, but I just, um, 
that I remember that being a lot of fun, probably too, because it was so long. It took so long to do. There's so many parts of it. So when you spend that much time with people, you end up getting along. Exactly. And it, the other thing I think about that is if, you know, you probably didn't know who these people are, you treated them like normal, you know, like you would your friends and they're not used to that. And there's something in that I know students can get intimidated sometimes when they're networking with people. And I'm even that way sometimes when I'm interviewing alumni, but I, I really think that being able to see the human side of a person and really being able to relate to them on that level. And what I mean more specifically is you're not a, a, this crazy fan that's obsessed with the players and you're thinking, Oh my goodness, like I get to meet Paul Newman and all these people, but you're mm-hmm. just, you know, they're, they're working, human you're, too. Working, right? yeah. you're working so. and you can handle meeting with a CEO or an executive and just remember that they're just like us. So, well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, that sounds like some really cool projects, something that not very many people get to work on. And so after that, those 20 years, is was the next thing, the, the documentary, Getting to the Nutcracker? After the commercials? No, I actually stopped. I ended up getting married and um, was still working. And then I got pregnant and I'm still working. Yep. And I, I remember we were working on a, we were in a skating rink here in Los Angeles and we put fake snow on the skating rink. It was awful <laughs> yep. because we had, they had to melt all the ice afterwards and insurance right. had to cover it with a fiasco. Oh, but wow. um, we were working and there was all this diffusion, which is smoke that they put in the air for while you're filming. So it looks kind of eerie. And I was pregnant at the time and I had to run to the bathroom like every two, two minutes and throw up because of the diffusion yeah. And I remember people saying to me, well, you know, you're going to stop working, aren't you? And I said, absolutely not. As soon as I give birth to this baby, I'm back in three months. <laughs> right. And I was, I was sure like, that's what I, I loved what I was doing. And I was sure that's what I was going to do. And then three months went by after I had Connor, my oldest, and I got the call, you ready to come back to work? And I said, you know what, just give me three more months. Right. And then Three more months went by and I got the call. You ready to come back to work? And I said, mm, you know, give me a few more months. And after a year, they stopped calling because I just, there was no way that anything could compare to raising a kid for me. Right. right. Um, and so I just, I ended up having three kids and um, didn't work in production at all yeah. for yeah. that, for those, for the time I was raising them. And then once, um, I think Nutcracker started in 2012. So that's when I went back. And I, yeah. my old, my oldest is now 27. Awesome. And so t- 2012. So remind me, how did you come back to that? What brought you back? Was it the fact that it was the ballet piece? I mean, I, was- well, just the, just that I was talking, you know, had read that article in the, in the times and then thought, you know, it's so silly that people still care about this kind of thing. I bet right, if I did right, a reality right. TV show. And, you know, out here in LA, I have a lot of friends that are in various parts of the business. And so I remember talking to two of my girlfriends about it and saying, you know, I'm going to write, I'm going to write something about, you know, to do a reality TV show. And then I shopped it around and ended up, you know, got getting the interest from NBC. And so it just kind of went from there. And I'm, and I'm a little pushy. So yep. would you, you, know, have, I, or you have to be, yeah. And so I, I don't like to hear no. So when I hear no, I just go till I hear yes. And probably part of, 
part of my determination to get this done was I knew it would be a good idea. Right. And I find that so fascinating because you see an article and you're so drawn to it and something probably clicked for you like, okay, I, I've got to do something about this, right? There's, I want to take some action. I want to produce something. And I think for people who are looking for passions and people who are seeking that and people who feel stuck, pay attention to, to even an article that you get excited about because sometimes mm -hmm. that can just be a sign for the, the direction that you want to go. And so, so now you're doing this. Was there ever a time during that that you felt overwhelmed to the point where you didn't think that you could do it or that you didn't think that you could finish it? Never. Never. And talk to me about that. I mean, I know Nutcracker so well. And having been a dancer I, I, and seen it, I mean, everyone you know has seen Nutcracker, right? I mean, it's a right. very well-known ballet. I knew if I went to the ballet company who I would follow because I know who the good dancers are. Right. And I knew that I could direct. I mean, I, I just knew because I'm, I'm good at de delegating. I'm good at giving orders and I'm, I'm confident and I have an eye with film and with, and with photography. So I, I knew what, how I would want something lit or how I would, I remember pushing my DP into the middle of a rehearsal happening and he was so afraid he was going to get kicked in the head because I was literally <laughs> putting him in the middle and he's like, I can't go in the middle. I can't go in. And I was physically pushing him. I'm like, get in the middle. Cause I wanted a sort of a POV from inside out rather than just shooting it from the outside in all the time. And he got it. And it's, it's, it was so good when, when we got it and I knew it would be, I just right. had to you know convince him. So it's just, you just, I just feel like I know, I know it. Yeah. And I let me what I like. <laughs> right, right. That's important. And and that confidence. I mean, that you, you need that, obviously, you're, when you're you're producing and directing this film. How, did you ever run into anybody? I mean, you, I guess that, that is just a really great example of you pushing, literally physically pushing someone into the mm -hmm. middle to experience it because you, you know what you want and what you're looking for. And so, so that's amazing. This I'm going to have to check out this documentary and everybody who's listening should check that out because I think that's very cool. What was next after that? I finished one last year called The Fifth Dementia. Yes. And that's about a band here in Los Angeles made of people with dementia, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. That was also, they kind of found me actually on that one. They, I was going for my annual mammogram to a doctor here who happened to be on the board for Music Men's Minds, which is the national group that has all these bands underneath them. So there's like 20 bands across the United States. Mm -hmm. And the one in LA is their flagship band called the fifth dementia. They all have different names. Right. Um, there's the Jazzanovas. There's another one called the trip, the treble makers. And he just said, you know, I'd really like, I, he, he had seen getting to the nutcracker. So right. he said, what are you working on? I kind of told him about the one with my mom, cause he's a radiologist. And I thought, hmm, you know, he would be able to refer anyone like I need for the film. Right. If he finds, you know, so I was talking to him about that and he said he would go on camera for me and talk, which it's always good to have a doctor in the film. Right. And then he said, but you know, if you wouldn't mind, I'm on the board of this company of music men's minds and they are sort of riding a, a wave right now of, of popularity and you might want to check them out. So I went to a nearby rehearsal the following week after talking to Carol, who was the co-founder of the, of the company and I walked in and it was like, 
aha moment. Like I got to do this because there was such joy and happiness from these people that the music was bringing to their lives. I mean, they walk in and they're kind of stooped over with walkers or caregivers or wheelchairs. And then they start singing or playing music and they, they like revive. Yeah. They can have a conversation. They can sing a song and they don't have sheet music. They don't have, they don't know what, you know, what every song is, but they just sing at the top of their lungs and it all comes back to them and they don't make a mistake and they're happy. And, you know, they leave, a little bit better, you know, they do. The music transforms their brain so that they become a little more alert, a little more aware. And what I came to learn is that music cells in your brain are the last to go when you have these neurodegenerative diseases. So they can do this till the day they die, wherever they are, and it will still bring them joy. And a lot of them, this is the only joy that they had. So I started, I, I just sort of put the other idea aside and started with that and went to all the rehearsals, started shooting with various cameramen because I had to do it intermittently. I couldn't just go shoot every day. It was only when they had rehearsals. And so I probably shot for about five months intermittently. And then I did some home interviews and followed about 25 of them. And I narrowed it down in the film to, I think about eight, eight or nine people three or four of which who have passed already. I mean, right. which is, it's so different because getting to the Nutcracker was the start of all these kids' careers. I mean, right. so many of them are killing it right now in the dance world. And this one is the end of their lives, essentially. And Very it's, interesting. Couldn't be, couldn't be more opposite, but still brought as much joy. I mean, I, I'm still friendly with so many of the people from the film and, one of the wives of the piano player in the film, she was the main person to finance our film. So. Right. Right. In- another incredible story. Yeah. And it's, again, too, I mean, you're talking to your doctor and you're talking about the things you're working on and what you're interested in. I've had guests on this show. We had one, her financial advisor, when she talked about what she was doing, was able to connect her with someone. So when you have, I, I think that's important. You know, just you never know when that's going to creep up and when that's going to come up as an opportunity. And so, again, and it's fascinating that starting the careers, you know, you're documenting that, and then here it is, it's kind of the end. And so, those two together, very, very interesting. And so, I'll ask you this, and I'm curious if students have reached out to you, and if they haven't, that you know, that's fine too. But for what would be your advice for someone who wants to get into film? And maybe they don't experience an earthquake at 3 a.m. and ask to be, right? I mean, what would you give to them, a a UVM student today who might be interested in that? It's probably what I would say to anybody in any career is to just, what I did was at the time, there was a book called LA 411. And it was a two inch thick book binder that had every production company in Los Angeles in it. And I went from A to Z and called every single one of those companies and said, where do I send my PA resume? Right. Or are you looking for PAs or who's the producer? Who's working there now? Can I talk to them? Do they need a PA? And I did that over and over and over. I was again, a pain in the ass. And I finally got hired at a few places. And then once you're hired, it goes from there. If you do a good job, everybody hires you. And so I would say with any career, if there's something you're interested in, you kind of take the worst job to start, whether it's an internship 
paid or unpaid. And you, you just get the coffee and you do what you are told to do, drive the truck, you know, and clean the toilet or whatever it is you need to do, you do it and you won't ever have to do it long if you do it well. Right. That's great advice. And when you say interview well, I mean, when you started interviewing, what, what, what did that look like for you? Did that mean be prepared and know things about, you know, the, the role itself, the production company? I mean, how would you define no, it? No, I think it... I think it would just be, you know, you're not drooling on yourself and you can put yourself together. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, they don't know you from Adam. You don't know them. So they're just trying you out. And as long as you produce, you know, a day's work that's without, you know, dropping something or crashing into something (laughs) or or not doing what somebody says, I think, you know, and if you get along, it's, it's all about people getting along with each other too. You know, you get find someone that you like and, and you work, you want to work with them some more. If, if you don't like them, you move on until you do find someone you like. Right. That's so true. Another really, Personalities, yeah. it really matters. And throughout, I mean, things I like to kind of try to summarize the themes that I see in, in people's careers. And for you, obviously you're, you're a go-getter. You don't like to take no for an answer. You put yourself out there. You put yourself into uncomfortable positions because you do have this confidence about you. And I mean, look what you've accomplished over that time. But the other thing that I've heard a lot in this interview is just your relationships with people, your ability to relate. And obviously that's reflected in the fact that you've now have two documentaries and you're, you're telling people's story and you're able to empathize and really help them get that out there. And so that really plays back into the relationships you, I'm sure that you've built over that, that 20 years climbing the ranks and getting to the place where you had the skill set to be able to execute on those things. So, you know, we've, I think oh, go ahead. there's, there is one other point that I think is important as a documentary filmmaker is that you have to ask questions and then listen to the answers. So I would ask questions that were very uncomfortable sometimes. Um, I remember asking this one older couple and I, when I say older, they're like 95 and 87. Right. And I asked them a, a question about sex, you know, and, and I don't care. If they don't want to answer it, right. they will not answer it, right? They'll right, just right. say, mm, we're not ready to answer that. But I have to ask because it's interesting. And it makes it makes someone want to say, hey, what, yeah, what is the answer? Will I be doing that when I'm 95? And, right. you know, what happens if only one wants? You know, it's like they can say no. And you know what? Nobody said no. And when I shut my mouth, which is one thing I learned from the first um documentary when I was doing the second one was shut up because a lot of times in the first one I spoke over a response and I couldn't use it in in post. So with this one, I just sat there and just stared at them and waited for the answers. And and I actually put one of the really uncomfortable parts where it was just dead silent in this last film. And it's just so uncomfortable. You want to like cringe. Right. And, I left it in and it's really, a, uh, I think, an important part of the film because it, it makes you realize the gravity of what it is they're suffering with. Absolutely. Well, I, for me, I'm sitting here, I'm like taking notes myself because, you know, obviously I started this podcast. I've never done anything like it before. I think you're probably now episode 15, 16, and I, I'm learning along the way too. But But that precise thing, asking an uncomfortable question is something that I still struggle with. It's something that I try to really bring to the table. But when you, you know, you don't know people and we're doing it remotely, things like that. But I like that you, 
brought that up. And another interesting thing, what you learn from the first one to the second one is to listen. And I really try to drill that into people is to practice active listening, let people talk. Don't think about your laundry. Don't think about what you have to do when you get home because people can really sense that. I'm sure for you that was critical because you really wanted to make sure that you could ask a good follow-up question or that you stay with the storyline. Is there anything else between the first documentary and the second that, that you learned? Or even at the second documentary, now moving on to the, the next one that you're doing that you learned and you want to do a little bit differently? I, I think my first one, I had such a great director of photography and the film ended up being so beautiful that I hear over and over after people see it that it, that it was such a beautifully shot film, like really pretty to watch. I like photojournalism more than crafting the light in a, in a scene. I, I, I like to see the reality of it and shoot that. And Nutcracker was beautifully shot because my DP cared about that. But in this next film, I didn't have that kind of DP. I had, I had several people shooting because it was so interspersed that one guy wasn't available and then the next guy wasn't available and then the next guy wasn't right. good. So, like I had a lot of crap footage that I had to use and it didn't really make that much of a difference to me at the time because I thought, well, this isn't a beautiful film. This is more about the interviews and about the diseases and about the music. Well, in seeing it afterwards, I thought, mm, I really wish this was a little prettier. I really do care more about how, how the film looks. And so I think in, in the next one that I do, I will take more time to raise some more money ahead of time, which is what I didn't do last time. I did it during because I had to. I had to get shooting. But this, this time I would like to have enough money so I can hire somebody that can shoot a beautiful film as well as an interesting film, you know, from, from my perspective. I, I, I would now care more about how it looks. Right. I see. Yeah. So how do you go about raising money for a documentary like this? Um, well, let's see, the first one we did a Kickstarter and that didn't do shit. And then <laughs> we, oh, we raised money, but I didn't realize at the time that I, if I, I had set the, the amount to 150,000 and we raised like 40,000. Right. And so if you don't reach your goal, they, you don't get any of the money. Oh, and I didn't wow. know that with Kickstarter. So I, I, I didn't know that, that either. Back if people pledged. Yeah. So I ended up financing a lot of that first film myself, which was a bummer. But I'm kind of making it back now because it's one of those films that has legs and it gets, it's on PBS every year now right? Um, for the last like six years. And it's downloaded all the time and it's on uh, Amazon and, and all of the um, Hulu and iTunes. So I, I get quarterly um, checks based on how much it's watched. And each year, Instead of going down like most films, lines going up. <laughs> yeah, because, right. Because people are finally like, "Oh, I know, you know, that's a Christmas film. I can watch yeah, that." Yeah, yeah. So that kind of worked in the opposite direction for me. And then the Fifth Dementia, this company called Creative Visions Network for Good found me, and they are a five hundred one c three that sponsors films that are for the greater good. Right. And so they did, they wanted to sponsor me. And that was good because anyone who donated to the film got a tax deduction. They took a cut. I think they take 7%. And then I got the rest. So there's a massive community of people over, I think, 80, 85 with Parkinson's dementia and Alzheimer's now. And 
especially in the Los Angeles area, they think there's like five or six different bands under the Music Men's Minds heading. So they sent out to their email addresses all of the um, solicitations to donate to Creative Visions for the Fifth Dementia. And I raised enough money to do the film that way. Yeah. Um, for that film. And then they've also told me, Network for Creative Visions has also told me they'll sponsor, you know, if I do the the Right to Die film. So, and they're also going to sponsor my husband's uh, documentary too about the guy, the black cyclist from Compton. So I think anything that works in the, for, for the greater good that, you know, works against racism or any sort of, you know, disease or something like that, they'll, they'll sponsor, which is a really good, I mean, anybody could do it. I think they have like 300 films on their site. Right. Um, it's a really good resource for filmmakers who want to raise money in a way that um, their donors can get tax deductions because people don't always like to donate without getting something for themselves. And even though Kickstarter, you know, we did a whole thing where we offered t-shirts and tickets and openings and premieres and dinners and all that. It still wasn't as much of an impetus to donate as people getting tax deductions. Right, right, right. <laughs> Sometimes I know, and that's and, and, and I tell students when, whenever you want to network with somebody or you ask, you know, always try to provide provide value. And in this case, it's okay the the tax deduction, but it's all very interesting. Now I'm curious too. So with these documentaries, you can talk about any single one of them, but how do you approach the people that you're about to film? And what I mean, what's what's your I don't want to call it a pitch, but I mean, it really is for you to say, listen, I'm, I'm doing this. This is the story I want to tell. I mean, how do you go about doing that? I don't. They come to me both okay. times. Okay. You know, and, and that's kind of why I'm never really that worried about my next project, because I know that something's going to come my way. Right. And, and it has to be, I, I've been, pe- people have given me several ideas and I've said, I've said no to because it's not something I care about. I mean, there's this, <laughs> there was one about nuclear energy. It's not that I don't care about it. It's just like, I can't imagine spending two years of my life right, talking right. about nuclear energy. And then there was another one about this crazy woman here in LA, which I thought was interesting, but I thought, Oh God, I can't be around this woman for more than 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. How am I going to shoot someone for, right. you know, and then, so there's, it has to, it has to mesh. It has to really feel right. And, um, I have to care about it. And, and I think that if I take a project like that on the people that I'm shooting know that and can sense that for me. And I, I think the people that I worked with on fifth dementia, I mean, they loved me. I would come in and I would get it before I could do anything. I had to hug everyone and kiss right. everyone and sure. tell, you know, and you know, it was warm and loving and kind and I wasn't, they, they trusted me that I wasn't going to make them look bad and, right. you know, p- put anything up. I mean, I did make everyone sign releases and there was one person that got really mad at me. Right. Um, but, but now that person reached out to me about five months ago and asked me to help him with the re- rest of his life because he has no family or wife or kids or anything. And so now I'm ha- I've been helping him for the last four months and so he knew he could trust me. He knew that he could count on me and I'm not going to just finish the film and move on. Uh, I mean, I've built relationships. So, you know, part of it is, I guess, human relationship. They get it. They get that I'm, I'm not going to hurt them. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect because I was curious too about your vision and I, I, my mind goes to getting to the Nutcracker and dancers. Were, were, was there ever a time when they might be worried about how you would portray them? And I mean, how did you handle that if that did come up? Well, you never really know what you're going to put together, what the, how the film's going to come out with a documentary. With with a scripted film, you obviously have right. Um, have the beginning and the end, but with a documentary, you can cut it so many different ways. Getting to the Nutcracker could have been cut 15 different ways, <clears throat> which is why I count so much on a really good editor because I'll give them all the footage and say, okay, tell me, tell me what you want to do here. Right. And I initially started shooting mostly girls with getting to the Nutcracker and a few boys Right. But the boys ended up being so strong that the ones I highlighted, I think I highlighted six boys and two girls in the end in the film. Wow. And it became very much about boys in the, in the ballet world. And I had no idea, at, you know, starting out that that's how it would come out. Right. So you don't really know. And, and I think they just have to trust me just like I have to trust them. And it's also why I ask, I ask such difficult questions because – it makes them cry. It makes them emotional. It makes them laugh, and it, it really brings out the the most the most moving parts of the films. Right. I mean, and that's why people are going to watch. I think asking the tough questions that no one else will, you get the answers that you wouldn't normally get, and that makes it interesting. That draws people to it. Yeah, or funny. I mean, right, right. There was there was. There were two times in the last film that, I mean, people asked me, how do you deal with such a sad topic? And I said, half the time I was laughing because these people come out, with, you know, with dementia and Alzheimer's, they come out with the funniest damn things. Like this one guy, Irwin, who's barely verbal anymore, showed up one time in all black. And I went up to him and I said, hello. And, and I said, Irwin, you look so, you look so nice and handsome today. And he goes, Black is swimming. <laughs> and so here's a guy that barely talks. Right. That's had dementia for 10 years that just comes and plays piano and then leaves. But he got the nuance of saying that wearing black is very slimming. You know, when I said he looked handsome, it just, right. so there are these momentary lights of connection that crack me up. You know, he was, in a chair, like a lounge chair in his home when I was interviewing him in front of a TV. And I said, what's your favorite TV show? And he just, all he said was Curb. So, you know, for Curb Your Enthusiast. Right. He loved Larry David. And so for him to just go Curb, I mean, I just burst into laughter. It was hilarious. Right. So there was just these unexpected moments that, show that there's there are these flashes of recognition or intelligence or humor or whatever it is that you don't expect. So when, when you're shooting, you don't really know what you're going to get. Yeah. You have to hope for the best. Right. I mean, and that, that is again, another parallel. It's you, you go into this and you're getting all of this footage. You, you can't force those moments to happen. They just sort of happen. And it, I mean, it, I keep going back to the earthquake too, because you couldn't force that. It just sort of happened. And you have to be prepared for that. And you have to sometimes be confident, not knowing what something's going to turn into. Because another thing that happens, people will ask, you know, they want to ask alumni, well, what should I do? Like, what action should I take? It's, I mean, think about literally your story. And this has been such a fun talk. I'm so 
grateful that you reached out again. But look at, I mean, you read an article that inspired you. You brought a skill set to that. You didn't probably didn't go into it. Like you just said, you ended up the gender balance changed for you as you went through this project. And so for people listening, start to think about what you like to do. Think about what excites you, like really inside what excites you and just Go make some content. Go do some things because you never know what it might turn into. You never know when you have those moments like, you know, interviewing a gentleman with dementia for 10 years and he blurts out a response curb and, you know, you capture that. And and I, I think that just unfolds. It's okay sometimes for life to unfold. You don't have to force it. So, um, Well, I'm going to just correct you on one part that you just said there. Yep. I yep. think you can't be prepared or ready. Yeah. I, you know, you can't, I, there's no way you can prepare for meeting someone or running into someone or an earthquake or, or you just kind of, sometimes it's just luck. And yeah, sometimes, sometimes you can just um, think, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. I'll try that. You know, I think it's just the being ready to try something that you don't feel comfortable doing, but sounds like fun. Right. You know, because you have to do you have to do what's fun or or it's work. It doesn't right. really feel like work when I when I when I do stuff. It feels like fun. And that's always the best when you get that. You're absolutely right there. I mean that sometimes you can't be prepared. You might bump into somebody on the street and it's like, "Oh my gosh." And then that's the moment, you know. Yep. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on or anything else that you wanted to talk about or any other advice for students that you would give? Well, I think if you feel like you're not happy in your major or your school or your relationship or your career choice, that you're young enough, even though you don't always feel young enough, to change your mind. Right. And do what makes you happy. I mean, I don't feel, I'm 57 now, and I don't feel... 57. I feel like I'm, you know, like starting out in a new, in a new career, you know, and it's not, it's, it feels comfortable. It feels good. It feels right. And I feel like I'm good at it. And I, just because you may be 30 in a job that you don't love or a school or grad school that you don't love, you can still just stop and do something else. Yes. Yes. I'm smiling I, because it's so good <laughs> to hear that. Because it doesn't even have to be students. I know there's a lot of alumni who listen to this and anybody else. There's there's always time. We have so much time. Well, Serene, I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing with a friend. Have a great day.